Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. So the Prophet at the age of eight, he moves to the house of Abu Talib and his wife uh, Fatima. Fatima was the mother of Imam Ali salam. He moves into their house and they are the ones who raise him. Abu Talib takes the Prophet, he takes him on a journey to Syria when the Prophet was around 12 years old. Some say nine years old, but say some say when he was 12 years old. Abu Talib went on a trip. In the winter he would go to Syria, in the summer he would go to Syria to do business. This was customary for the Arabs to do. In the summer they would go to Syria, in the winter they would go to Yemen to do business. The journey of the summer and the journey of the winter. This was common amongst the Arabs to do business and to do trade. Abu Talib wanted to go to Syria. Initially he refused to take the Prophet with him because he did not want the Prophet to come on this journey. There are dangers whenever you would travel at the time. He wanted him to stay safe in Mecca. But the Prophet cries. He was so attached to Abu Talib, he cries when he sees Abu Talib departing. Abu Talib, his heart is broken and when he sees the Prophet, this boy, this 12-year-old boy crying, he says, okay, I'll take you with me. I don't want you to stay here and be heartbroken. So he takes the Prophet with him on that journey. They're now on their way to Syria. This was now the first time that the Prophet is going to Syria on such a long journey. He's examining the landscape. Syria was beautiful with these lush hills. They passed through many villages, many areas. Now on their way to Sham, you know, to Damascus, to Syria, they pass by a village by the name of Busra. Busra was a village which had a very important monk by the name of Bahira. Bahira we call him. Bahira was a very well-known monk, a Christian monk who lived in this village. He was known for his deep knowledge. In fact many Arab tribes when they would go to Syria they would pass by this village just to talk to Bahira. They would consult him, they would learn from his wisdom. He was a very, very wise man. Yes? Uh, did Abu Talib uh, know that he was, uh, Muhammad was the Prophet? Yes, Abu Talib also had seen signs like the one we'll just talk about now, that this boy was special and that he would be a messenger. Yes, even in lines of poetry he does say that. In lines of poetry that we'll examine later, Abu Talib, says that we've seen in the books and the scriptures that you are a messenger just like Musa and Isa. So he did know there were these signs that he had seen. So they reach this village and of Busra and they meet this monk, they're passing by, they happen to meet him. When Bahira sees this young boy, just like that king of Yemen, he starts examining him very closely. He's seeing him, this boy is not your average boy. He's got these signs, you would see his shoulder, his facial features, his manners. So he approaches the caravan and he says, who is responsible for this young boy? 
Who's the guardian of this young boy? They tell him the guardian of this young boy is Abu Talib, it's his uncle. He says, please bring him, I want to talk to him. So he talks to Abu Talib and he tells him, this is your nephew? He says, yeah, this is my nephew. He tells him, look, I have many, many signs in our books. I master the Torah, the Injil, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and your boy is very, very special. I see all the signs of prophethood in this boy and he seems to be the final messenger who will come at the end of time. So he tells him in our books it's mentioned that his name is Muhammad. What's the name of this boy? He tells him his name is Muhammad and he asks him some other questions to know whether he's the prophet and he realizes all the signs are there. You know he's born in Mecca, he grew up an orphan, he lost his grandfather and now his uncle is taking care of him. So Bahira tells Abu Talib the same exact thing that that Yemeni king told Abdul Muttalib. He tells him, look, your grandson, your nephew will have enemies, especially some Jews, they will try to kill him. So make sure that you protect him. And I don't advise you to continue on this journey. If some people find out upon seeing him, then this will impose a danger to his life. This will pose a danger to his life. So I suggest you take him back, keep him safe in Mecca until he grows up. Abu Talib is now really concerned. Should he continue on this journey? Should he not continue on this journey? But he decides for the safety of the Prophet to go back to Mecca. Now there are some sources here that indicate Sunni sources that Abu Bakr was there present on that journey and Abu Bakr is the one who had the Prophet go back to Mecca. He ordered Bilal, he gave an order to Bilal, Bilal take Muhammad back to Mecca and save his life. This hadith, this historical hadith is problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, some historians have mentioned Abu Bakr was not even present in that trip. So how did this happen? That's number one. Number two, Abu Bakr was at least two years younger than the Prophet. So the Prophet was how old at this time? Twelve. Even some narrations say he was nine, but let's say twelve. So Abu Bakr must have been less than ten years old. Bilal was several years younger than Abu Bakr. Bilal was no more than seven years old at this time. How is it possible that Abu Bakr is now in charge and he's giving an order to Bilal, a seven-year-old boy, telling him to take Muhammad who's 12 years old uh, to back to Mecca? Doesn't make sense. Absolutely, make, why is Abu Bakr here involved? Why is he giving orders? He's younger than the Prophet. And why is Bilal, a seven-year-old boy, taking Muhammad, a 12-year-old boy, back to Mecca? This hadith was forged to show that early on Abu Bakr had a special relationship with the Prophet and he knew he'd be a messenger and he believed in his message early on and he wanted to protect the Prophet's life. That was the political motive behind such hadiths and that's why some, some Sunni scholars based on such hadiths they've said yeah Abu Bakr was the first person to believe in the Prophet, not Imam Ali because early on he knew in his uh, special status and he would take care of him and protect his life. Another point here, 
What did Abu Bakr have to do with Bilal here? Why is he giving him an order like he's a slave? Bilal at that time was not a slave for Abu Bakr, he was owned by Umayyah. 30 years later, according to some historical accounts, Abu Bakr purchased him and he became a slave for Abu Bakr. Not when he was seven. So on what basis is Abu Bakr even commanding Bilal like he's a slave to take him back to Mecca? He did, not, he did not even own him at the time. So this hadith, this historical account is highly problematic and we have issues with it. It's just you know not plausible that the Prophet is 12 and these two younger boys are making decisions for him and, and taking him back to Mecca, it's just not possible. So the correct version of the story is that Abu Talib himself took him back to Mecca. He feared for his life. Bahira made him really concerned by saying that, that you know the, he has a bright future, brilliant, br brilliant future. He will have many enemies who will try to kill him. So make sure you don't continue on this journey. So it's Abu Talib who actually took back the Prophet to Mecca. Yes, brother. So when you're mentioning that it's going to be like specifically a group of Jewish people that might want to kill him, if they also believe that he was the prophet, do they mean like a specific group and not in general? Because yeah, see, Bahira was not referring to all Jews. Mm -hmm. He was probably referring to those Jews in Medina who would later try to kill the prophet, and they did. Mm -hmm. Like uh, at the Battle of Bani Quraidha, they conspired with the pagans to have the Prophet killed on a number of occasions. Uh, at one time they put poison in the food of the Prophet. They, so they, there were efforts by the Jews to kill the Prophet and that's probably what he was referring to. Initially the Jews were also waiting for this final messenger to emerge but then when they realized he's becoming prominent and he's getting all the spotlight and he's not from Bani Israel, he's not from the Jewish tribes, he's from the uh, lineage of Ismail that caused them to fight him because they wanted the last messenger to be a Jewish prophet, to be from their uh, ancestry or from their line, from their descendants. So we see that yes, there were indications in those books that some Jews will try to kill the prophet and that's exactly what happened. After the prophet announced his uh, you know, message, not all Jews but some Jewish tribes, they tried to kill the prophet. So he takes him back to Mecca. Another observation about this incident, you will find many orientalists throughout history, they use this incident, the story that happened with Bahira, this monk, the Christian monk, to say that it was this incident which gave Muhammad the idea of starting his religion and all those teachings that he brought in the Quran, the origin of it was Bahira. He learned it all from him, he took the stories of previous prophets from his Bible, he taught him all of that, he took it and 28 years later he started a new religion. Some orientalists accuse the prophet of doing that, however this is not true for a number of reasons. First of all, the prophet didn't live with this monk, he was just on a journey, you know he's, they spent a few days there, how are you going to learn all of that in a few days, especially when you're unlettered, you don't read, you don't write, you have not been to school, that's just not possible. To learn the depth of the Torah and the Injil for you to start this religion, because there's a lot of similarities between the Quran and the uh, previous books, 
How can you learn all of that in a few days? That's just impossible or highly unlikely. Number two, the Quraysh, the pagans of Mecca, they tried to bring every excuse to attack the Prophet and say he's not a messenger. They called him a magician. They also accused him of taking the uh, teachings from Christians and Jews, but they never accused him of taking the te teachings of Bahira. So if this had been the case, then the Quraysh would have easily discredited the Prophet and say, oh, it's that journey that you had with Bahira and that's how you got these teachings. They never made any mention of that. So this is an indication that that is, that is not the case. Number three, while there are similarities between the Quran and the Bible, but the Quran when it speaks about the history of previous nations and prophets, it's very different than the Bible. It first of all, it gives us details not found in the Bible. Secondly, it gives us another perspective. The Bible is filled with verses that, you know, picture the prophets and display them in a very negative way. You know, they would commit adultery, they would get drunk, they would do acts of injustice, they would kill people unrightfully, so on and so forth. You find none of that in the Quran. So the Quran has another source. Yes, some similarities do exist, some basic ideas in both divine books, but there are so many different details in the Quran which tell you that the Prophet did not get those details from Bahira. He had another source which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you will find if you're ever researching the biography of the Prophet and the story, you will find some Orientalists who tried to use this incident to say, oh that's where Muhammad learned his teachings and he developed them and he made his religion. But that is really not the case, that's false.